Hi, welcome to Color Code, a podcast about race in Canada by the Globe and Mail. I'm Hannah Sung. And I'm Denise Belkasoon. Today's episode is called The Most Visible Minority. And our question is, what is it like when you have a high profile and you're also, quote unquote, a visible minority? May I just interject for a moment to say that I hope that when you said the most visible minority, some of our listeners left because <laughs> that's a phrase that just kind of came up in a meeting and we were laughing about it. And I think we all thought it was funny in our little tiny bubble, but then it just stuck. And we were stuck on trying to understand what that experience is like for other people because I think that you and I, Denise, have a little bit to say on what that's like. Sure. I mean... It's sometimes a surprise, I guess. You know, I often have journalism students, especially, or when we have summer staffers or interns at the Globe and Mail who really feel that they connect with me and my work because A, I'm not white, or B, more specifically, I am brown. And that's awesome. It's also a feeling of huge responsibility, being seen as maybe I don't know, a role model or representative of a community. And then also sometimes it's a community that is not actually the ethnicity that I am. What does that mean? Like, what do people assume you are? And what are you? Right. I mean, most people, I think, on first glance, assume that I am Indian or South Asian. Uh, My parents are actually from Trinidad. So their ancestors are South Asian, but probably not Like, my grandparents were also born in Trinidad, so I would say, you know, it's like two or three generations back. But, you know, back to the most visible minority, I think I've been a little bit sheltered from that in the pre-social media age in that I'm mostly a writer. And so from my name, it's not clear, honestly, unless you are Trinidadian or Guyanese, what my ethnicity is to most people. But I think one of your earlier media jobs was much more public-facing. It was much more visual. And so you probably took that on earlier than I did. Yeah, definitely. And I don't think I was ready for it. I was not ready for it. Because, you know, in my 20s, I landed a job at Much Music, which is a very, very coveted job for young people. And frankly, it's high pressure, which nobody wants to hear. They want to hear about all the great, like, fun aspects. I hung out with all these celebrities. <laughs> yeah. And I did, okay? (laughs) But, you know, it it is a great job, but it's also high pressure. And I was just dealing with that aspect. And I didn't expect for race to become a thing. I don't know what I was expecting. How could it not? But, you know, I had to come to terms with how visual TV is, which sounds like a pretty stupid realization to come to. But I really thought that if I open my mouth and I speak, people might hear the words coming out of my mouth. And then... It took a little bit of time for me to realize, oh, sometimes people watch TV with the volume off. (laughs) Or they don't hear what's coming out of my mouth. I remember a very early comment about me on the message boards because it was pre-social media. But this person said, she can't even speak English. And I was like, uh, you're not listening to me. You're only I can't speak Korean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Korean is the language I can't speak, please. (laughs) Um... No, mom, the crane classes did work. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's that was one of my first kind of experiences of um, it doesn't matter what I say. You're going to have your weird views on who I am based on my race. So the process of being on TV kind of hardened me or toughened me up in many ways. And this is a topic that I brought up with both of our guests 
first of all, I'm going to tell you who's coming up. And if you live in Toronto, you know all about the Toronto International Film Festival. Well, we're speaking with the public face of TIFF itself, Artistic Director Cameron Bailey. Also, we've got the man that international press like to call North America's first Muslim mayor. And he is. But in Canada, we know him as Calgary's own Mayor Nahid Nenshi. For a quick bio on him, he was a university prof, Harvard educated, when he went from the world of academia to becoming the mayor in 2010 and then re-elected again in 2013. So I had many questions for him, but first, I just wanted to know what life was like for him as a kid. Tell us about your childhood. What kind of a kid were you? Sure. Uh, I was born here in Toronto at St. Mike's Hospital in downtown Toronto. My parents immigrated when my mother was pregnant with me. So I often say that I was born in Canada, but made in Tanzania. And when I was about a year old, we packed up our belongings, me and my four-year-old sister, drove cross-country and ended up in Calgary, where I grew up. I got to spend three years growing up uh, just outside of Red Deer when my parents invested in a very bad business idea. And, what was uh, it? Well, like with all South Asian people, we're in the hospitality business. We own motels. We bought a motel just outside of Red Deer, Alberta in 1979, just before that global recession. So that didn't go that well. But I did get to go to a junior high school that had its own rodeo. What is that like, a rodeo that is owned and operated by a junior high? Everyone brought their own horses. Oh my gosh. I, of course, lived in a motel, not on a ranch, in the house, the little house attached to the motel. So the only thing I was eligible uh, for was the grease pig race, which I found undignified, uh, both for me and the pig. Uh, (laughs) So I mostly just watched, (laughs) but it was fun. (laughs) So if you were just watching, I mean, did you feel like an outsider or did you feel like, hey, this I, I'm a part of this rodeo community? Uh, you know, a bit of both because I didn't have horses, but I went to school with these kids and they were perfectly nice to me. And in fact, um, shortly after I became mayor, someone tweeted to me a photo and they said, first cowboy hat, question mark. And it was a picture of me <laughs> at that rodeo. And it turns out this was the sister of one of my buddies, and I still remember to this day that guy, Chad, invited me to his house for a sleepover, and I'd never been to a sleepover before, and I thought that was the sweetest thing you could do for the new kid in school. Mm-hmm. So even at that young age, you you felt a kind of gratitude towards Chad for inviting you? Yeah, I sure did. And, you know, I'm making it sound a bit utopian. Of course, as with anyone who belongs to a minority group, there were points that weren't that nice. You know, certainly there were racialized statements. Certainly there was always a sense that as a minority, you had to do just a little bit better to prove yourself. And, you know, that was true in rural Alberta. That was true in downtown Calgary. The question is, does that kind of behavior prevent you from being anything you want to be or doing anything you want to do? And I think that's one of the very special things in Canada, because for the vast, vast, vast majority of people, the answer to that question is no. Mm-hmm. So if it does not, say, prevent you from becoming mayor, what do you think racialized statements, you know, the kinds of things that I'm going to imagine kids might have said to you on the playground, what, what does that do to someone? You know, there's two ways of thinking about it. One is that that is enormous trauma. The other is that that toughens you up. And I think the answer is really neither of those things. That is just reality. It's not something you can deny. You know, there's, there are racists in the world. 
And at some point, you learn how to navigate in that world. Do you let it crush you? Do you ignore it? Or do you do something in between? Uh, And I think most people figure out the something in between and the continuum is different for different people. You know, it wasn't so bad, I think, on the schoolyard um, because you go to school with these kids. You get to know them. But yeah, you know, occasionally there are strangers who say stuff, but I'll tell you something. In my current role, I get attacked for so much stuff. You know, I don't like his stance on this, that, or the other thing. Sometimes I get attacked for my looks or my weight or my outstanding hair. And by the way, of course, I get far, far, far less than any woman in public life gets on that stuff. But aside from the real out there racists who do exist, it is extremely uncommon for anyone to say anything nasty to me about my skin color or about my faith. And I think that's an interesting thing in Canada. Let me digress, if you don't mind, for a second. When I was first elected in 2010, I suddenly found myself, literally within hours of my election, very, very, very famous. You know, the day after my election, I spent 30 minutes one-on-one with Peter Mansbridge. And Time Magazine wanted to talk to me, and CNN, and Al Jazeera. And it was interesting because none of them wanted to talk to me about how a university professor goes from 0% in the polls to 40% in six months. And in fact, they didn't want to talk to me about my skin color. They only wanted to talk to me about my faith. So I really did have a choice to make, which is just to say to these people, why do you want to talk to me about this? You know, it's it's not important. And I didn't take that choice because I thought in the world in which we live now and we did six years ago, It was actually really important to tell a story about a place where, by and large, pluralism works. But it's something we have to fight for every day. You know, this is still the country of the Komagata Maru. It's still the country of the Chinese head tax. It's still the country of residential schools. This plurality in which we live is incredibly fragile. So what is holding it together? Part of it is just goodwill. But part of it is that we are not shy, as Canadians to stand up against those voices of intolerance and small-mindedness when we hear them. You know, I'm sure that everybody harbors feelings about one group or another that are not all sunshine and rainbows. But somehow in Canada, we have a social contract that even if I may not like you much, that shouldn't mean I should have the right to prevent you from getting a job or a promotion or an apartment, wherever you want. And, you know, sometimes in certain circles, we don't like that word tolerance because it sounds like a very base value. I don't want to be tolerated by you. I want to be accepted or loved or admired by you. But I wonder if sometimes tolerance is actually the highest value for someone to say, you know what, maybe I don't like Muslims, but it's okay if a Muslim family lives next door to me. That's fine. And it's okay that their kids go to school with my kids. And it's okay that they have the same opportunities that I do, even if they'll never be my best friend. And, you know, I know that sounds a bit cynical of me to say that. But I think that respect for opportunity for everyone in the community is not necessarily a bad thing. I want to go back to something you said about when um, you were asked about being Muslim and you had a choice to make when you became overnight famous and you made a choice to talk about it. Do you ever feel like you have been put into the role of being some sort of teacher, like a racialized or faith teacher for the broader public? 
it did take about three years for the Globe and Mail to stop referring to me in every instance as Canada's first Muslim mayor. Um, where do, where do you think that came from? Like, why do you think there's that? I think they were just shy to say Canada's mayor who looks the most like Brad Pitt. Um, <laughs> you know, because it is unique and new and interesting. And it is true that it was only the Globe that kept doing it. Uh, I think I might have mentioned something and then they stopped. But um, I'm not an imam. But at the same time, I don't mind people seeing me as someone who is a person of faith, who tries to live in accordance with a faith framework, but who also is happily the mayor for everybody. I remember on a, on a C- national CBC TV show, they played me a clip, a clip of me intoning a uh, non-denominational prayer that we used to start every council meeting with. And they were like, this is not really a prayer. He's just saying it because he has to. Uh, and I insisted on going on the show and saying, actually, I love that we start our council meetings with a reminder of our purpose. So it strikes me as interesting that you use the phrase, you know, I insisted on being on that show. Like you wanted to have your <laughs> well, say about it. because they played a clip for me and I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just because many well, okay, I'll just speak on my own behalf, you know, as somebody who also is, I guess, a visible minority, that is the way that people outside of me see me. I see me as myself, obviously, but, and being someone who previously had a career in television, which is very literally two-dimensional, I felt that people really just saw visual cues first, and it's almost like it ended there as well. So I was very racialized, I felt. Um, And the way that I realized what I was feeling was that I was getting like fan mail. I was like on Much Music, so it was teenagers. I was getting fan mail from... I might have been sending you some of those letters just saying. Thank you so much, Mayor. But but you're not what the usual demographic was for me, which was um, young female Asian person who wanted to be a journalist. It was almost like very, very like it was, it almost became a joke in how narrow I felt um, my connection was for some strange reason. But you didn't, you didn't find value in that? That really these young women are seeing somebody who's doing something they never thought they could do? Yes. So I did, but I also resented That's to a degree. Yes, but it was because of my age, I really feel like. I think that when you're in your early 20s, you're really invested in trying to understand who you are in the world. And I felt there was a burden to this kind of responsibility, you know, to kind of represent. You know what? There is a burden. It comes right back to where we started our conversation. You have to work a little bit harder because you've got the expectations of an entire community on you, whether you really do or not. You feel that you do. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I actually find it a privilege that not only do I have the opportunity to try and inspire people, and I don't care if it's a Muslim kid or a fat kid or a not particularly good-looking kid, right, or an Indo-Canadian kid or a white kid or a nerdy kid for that matter, but if someone sees just a little bit of themselves in you and go, you know what, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could try that. To me, that's not a burden, That is a privilege uh, that I have the opportunity to do that. It means I got to work harder. It means I got to keep my nose clean because you know what happens? If I fail, I bring down the expectations of what anyone who is in my space can do, you know? And so, of course, it's different for you. It's different for me than it would be for someone who looks more traditional in these roles. It It would be ridiculous to say that's not true. 
I think it's a good thing. You would say that now, but was there ever a point where it felt like a weight to bear? I think in the world as we now face it, I am very concerned about a certain movement towards Islamophobia, which is new. The Islamophobia is difficult because it's also personal. That's why during the last federal election, I some people say I swam out of my lane, but I had to speak out on the right for people of every faith to be able to have access to all the rights and opportunities of being a Canadian citizen. That is why the conversation about the niqab and the dog whistle politics were so dangerous. Because when you isolate one group, it's actually very dangerous from a public policy perspective. Because when we look at, for example, radicalization of our youth, it comes from isolation and lack of opportunity. It doesn't come from a deep religious fervor. And so then what happens if you've got a generation of Muslim youth in this country and you say to them, you know what, it doesn't matter how hard you work. You can never be truly, authentically Canadian. That is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And we still have to remain vigilant. And you're right. Sometimes it feels like a bit of a burden, but it's also an honor. So what did you think, Denise? Uh, he's, He's so smart. He's so eloquent. He really knows how to connect, I think, personally with people when he's talking to them. I hear a butt coming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I agree with everything he said. I mean, the idea of working harder so that as people of color in public positions, not only do we have to actually do our jobs, whatever our jobs might be, and do them well, but we also need to be an official or unofficial role model. And we also need to understand that if we don't do our jobs well, that our entire ethnicity and probably in our cases, our entire gender may take the fall for that. Um, That's unfair, first of all. And it's also such a burden. You know, you and I have talked about a piece. It's by Cord Jefferson on media. Yes. Um, It's called The Race Beat, and he talks about... I think about it all the time. Just like the psychological trauma of reporting on racism all the time and always having to go back to the beginning and explain like, hey, in his case, guess what? Black men are people. We have lives and hopes and dreams and people that we love. We're people. And just it's not fair that we have to work harder and also deal with that sometimes very emotional experience. And so I would say that uh, I do consider it a privilege when... Young women, young brown women come to me and say that my work is meaningful to them. That is so important and touching to me. But it's still unfair, the idea that I would have to work harder. Yeah, definitely. And so I have to also mention that I I do love it when I hear from young Asian aspiring journalists who happen to be female as well. Like, because I was hearing from people like that, I made it my personal stance that whenever I do hear from a student who wants to ask me something or whatever it is, like I always respond and I always do what I can. And so I guess on some level, I do embrace the role of being a kind of guide or mentor to some, uh, to anybody really who would uh, want to get in touch with me. But I agree with you, Denise. You know, I, I really enjoyed speaking with Marin and she, He obviously has a deep love for his country and for the immigrant experience, you know. 
But at the same time, he's a politician, and representing for other people is part of the job description. So in wanting to be a politician, that's something he wants to take on for himself. And I'm glad that he describes it as an honor and a privilege, because that's what you want to hear from a politician. But not every racialized person in a job where they're high profile wants to take that on. When it comes to representing for your people, uh, obviously, because that is the topic for today's episode, that is something that I brought up with Cameron Bailey. He's the artistic director of the Toronto International Film Festival, which means that he has a hand in everything that has to do with a look, shape, and feel of TIFF, but especially the programming. And he's someone who has been writing and thinking about race and representation in film for 25 years. But just this past winter... Hashtag Oscar So White blew up on Twitter again. So that's where we started our conversation. Last Oscar season, there was the Oscar So White hashtag, and you wrote about it for us. Um, First of all, why did you write about it? I had things I wanted to say. Um, I certainly felt that as uh, someone in a fairly visible uh, position within the film industry, um, who is black, that uh, I should be contributing. Do you feel some sense of responsibility for getting people up to speed or for teaching people to a certain degree? The answer is yes and no. Uh, Yes, because I I have been working in this area in terms of representation and and thinking and writing about it for a long time. So if I do have more experience and a longer history with these ideas, then yeah, there is a responsibility to try to educate people. But on the other hand, it shouldn't be my responsibility. At a certain point, you want people to educate themselves, right? And so I, I hope that when these ideas become relevant in public discourse that everyone feels a responsibility to learn as much as they can about it and not to kind of go to somebody because they're black or they're indigenous or they're a woman or they're LGBT and say, explain this to me, I don't get it. That's what reading is for. (laughs) What about the behind the scenes of your world? Like, is your world diverse, the film festival world? And I guess it goes beyond TIFF, but like, you know, there are many festivals around the world that I assume you go to. Sure. Um, It's a complex world, and I've been thinking a lot about this lately because the way that you get into this world of film festivals and independent cinema and art house cinema is by establishing your knowledge and your your ability to, to talk about movies. And so in a way, that can seem like it is... It's race neutral, it's gender neutral, it's sexual orientation neutral. It's just, you know, whoever's got interesting ideas and has seen a lot of movies, then they they can be a part of the club. But the club ends up being a lot of older straight white men still. So how did that happen? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's because it's not not neutral. That's the thing, right? Um, It appears that way. And independent cinema, I think, often adopts a kind of a superior attitude to Hollywood cinema, which is seen as purely commercial and purely about lowest common denominator. And, of course, that Hollywood uh, representation would be sexist and racist and homophobic and that kind of thing. But the same things are true of independent and arthouse cinema. You constantly see movies that are about the most retrograde kinds of narratives. So I think once you're in that world, then it's incumbent upon you to actually just call that stuff out. But those are difficult conversations when you're in a room with people who don't agree or who, worse, don't even see it, you know, and that happens. The thing that I have the least patience with is people who um, are 
unwilling to talk about things like race or gender um, or gender orientation because it makes them uncomfortable. I feel like, yeah, that you got to get over that, you know? How do you sense when somebody is actually uncomfortable with race or gender? I mean, because that kind of a person is not going to say, I mean, well, do they say I'm uncomfortable having this discussion about Often race? they don't, but there are giveaways. There's some white people who can't have a hard time using the, the word white <laughs> in regard to, to their own background. Um, they'll use every other word. And often people don't like to, to talk about race because they either they're not used to it or they think they're going to say the wrong thing. They think they're going to talk about things in the wrong way. They're going to be called out. I think as long as you're talking, you know, any point of view is always valid. It should be challenged if it deserves to be challenged. But, you know, I think you should never shut down a conversation because somebody said something the wrong way. It's really important to just talk about it, I think. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. I'm curious whether people come up to you on the street and, you know, what they want to say to you. It really varies. People love the festival in this city, which is great. So I get so much of that, you know, sort of projected back at me as representative of that. And that's wonderful. And then, you know, there's a specific kind of response that I get from black people. You know, which has to do with pride. I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, so gratified and so, um, you know, humbled when people who are kind of of my mother's age come up to me and just actually say that they're proud of what I'm doing. And and they don't say it, but I know they're proud to see a black person doing this job, right? So that that's meaningful to me. And in this job, you know, many black people see me as having an opportunity to help change how black people are seen. Uh, And that's a tough one to deal with because I don't want that to be the main thing that guides my decisions in terms of what films we show or how we show them. Uh, But it's certainly something I'm aware of because just the onslaught of a certain kind of imagery is so dominant. That makes me think about um, rap artists and they Mm -hmm. are by no means role Mm -hmm. models, but like I wonder how much a really big rap artist who transcends, like, you know, who is a pop star, right? Like Mm -hmm. someone like a Snoop Dogg or like a, I don't know, reaching back 50 Cent, like what they think about in terms of what they do to shape the world's Mm -hmm. image of an American black man. Why should it be on them? I don't know. There's nothing you can say to the people who created this culture, right? They did it out of love and out of their own ingenuity and, and their own genius. And then it just goes out into the world. But then I think it's really incumbent upon the people who are consuming the culture to really understand where it's coming from, to understand the language of that culture, the vocabulary of that culture, uh, and the codes of the culture in a, in a, in a deeper way. It flips the sense of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. On the listener, the viewer, yeah, the consumer. From the old trope of, look what you're saying to the kids. And the message <laughs> and it's like, right. well, maybe no. the kids need to grow the up kids and ha- yeah. be reading exactly. their own stuff. Exactly. You know, I just want to revisit one thing that you said about... Um, women your mother's age speaking mm-hmm. to you on the street. What does your actual mom say to you about mm-hmm. your job? Um, now she's incredibly proud. Uh, I mean, she was always proud, but um, she understands now more what I do. I didn't know this was a job when I was young, and, and I think she didn't fully know like what the job was. And I think she has some understanding of, I think, the responsibility involved as well, you know, just what it means to try to contribute to the shaping of a film culture. Mm-hmm. Does she do the thing that Korean moms do, which mm-hmm. is brag? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I have no idea, and it's probably best if I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
Cameron Bailey, that guy speaks my kind of truth. It's, mm -hmm. you know, your responsibility to be educated and he doesn't have patience for people who don't. I really appreciated all of Cameron's thoughts as well. And really for both of our interview subjects, they did say revealing things. They were pretty open and that's not easy to do when you are in such a high profile role. For sure. I sort of feel since we're having this conversation and Cameron Bailey brought up his mom, you know, I should say that my dad was the most visible minority for a while. So he... In your family? Uh, or at all? Yeah, at all. So he uh, um, he's one of a very few Toronto City Councillors who weren't white. And then he was an MPP. Um, he just retired this year. And so did you learn any lessons about what it's like to be the most visible minority from watching your dad? No, I mean, my, my father is very... Um, he is very much the kind of guy who's like, you just work harder. I think he may have specifically told us that we just work harder than white people, and that's how it goes. Um, one of the few times I ever remember him making a comment that showed that this kind of thing bugged him was that maybe on like Canada 125, they were supposed to have an event in period dress. And I mean, there would have been no... South Asian people in Canada at the time, or at least not in Ontario, there wouldn't have been very many, maybe in BC there were. So then, you know, what exactly is he supposed to wear? Is he supposed to wear like an English nobleman suit? And he made some sort of crack about how he was going to go in shackles. Oh boy. <laughs> Which he never did, obviously. I don't know if he even went to the event, but that's like one of the few times that I remember him making a comment that like, I am in a majority white environment and people like do not get what it's like to be me. And you can tell the story now that he's retired. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. I'm very glad that Canada is a country now where we can look at high profile people and they will be a Nahid Denshi and a Cameron Bailey and mm -hmm. that those types of people who do speak a greater truth about race and racism have such a great platform because that wasn't really the case when I was growing up. Yeah, and they leverage, you know, what their platform affords them. And in fact, they have both written for us within the past year about these issues, and that's exactly why I approached them for the podcast is because um, I thought they had, like, so many interesting, complex points of view to share. But, you know, in so doing, and I don't want to, like, be overthinking this, but does that put them further in this role of having to represent? Mm -hmm. I think basically what it comes down to is there's no way out of it. So you have to figure out your own role and what the parameters of your role will be, you know, and like for yourself and for myself too, right? Or in your town or in your school, there's no escaping that you're just going to have to think to yourself like Nahi Nenshi did, what decision am I going to make and how am I going to talk about it and what are my motivations behind talking about it? And at the very least, like that's just a given because the world we live in. Thank you for listening. This week's episode was produced by us, Hannah Sung and Denise Balkasoon, with technical production by Timothy Moore and senior producer Kevin Sue. Big thanks to our guests this week, Cameron Bailey of the Toronto International Film Festival and Mayor Nahi Nenshi. Tweet us. Thanks also to Bonje, whose song Stumble you hear every episode as our theme. If you enjoyed this episode of Color Code, rate and review it on iTunes, share it with a friend, and subscribe. We also want to hear what you think. So open up the Voice Memo app on your phone, record a voice memo, and talk back to us or any of our guests. Let us know what you think about being the most visible minority. You can email us the voice memo at colorcode at globeandmail.com. 
And you know who does have a lot to say about what it's like to put yourself on a platform? She's a pop star, activist, and controversial figure. Next week, our one-on-one interview with MIA. Until then, we'll see you on the Twitter. I'm at Hannah Sung. And I'm at Balkasoon. Thanks so much for listening to Color Code.